Welcome to Ingest, the podcast series designed for primary care clinicians and brought to you by the Primary Care Society of Gastroenterology. I'm Dr. Charlie Andrews, a GP in Somerset and also a GP with an extended role in gastroenterology at the Royal United Hospital in Bath. I will be your host during this podcast series and I'll be talking to many different specialists in various aspects of gastroenterology to try to bring you up-to-date, reliable advice about when to suspect, how to diagnose, who to refer and how to support your patients with gastrointestinal conditions in the community. Today I'm speaking to Dr Mark Follows about dysphagia. Mark is a GP with an extended role in gastroenterology and clinical lead for planned care and gastroenterology for Norfolk and Waveney CCG. Mark is a member of the British Society of Gastroenterology and a PCSG, Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology committee member. Mark was a gastroenterology specialist trainee prior to starting GP training. Mark has an interest in training, education and gastroenterology service development. He's currently a member of the British Society of Gastroenterology Getting It Right First Time Working Group, as well as a NICE Technical Advisor. Alongside his gastrointestinal and GP interests, Mark also enjoys food, travel, rugby, cricket and playing the drums. So thank you so much for joining me today, Mark. Thank you for inviting me. So we're talking about dysphagia today, and I feel like a really good place to start with that is to try and define what is dysphagia, well, dysphagia in itself just roughly means a difficulty in swallowing. And, and if, if I may, I'd probably start with what, you know, what actually is a normal swallow, because I think understanding what, what normal is actually helps people then diagnose what's going on with difficulty in swallowing and dysphagia. So if you think about swallowing as a process, it's something that we take for granted. You know, if you consider, you know, a newborn baby, you know, gets put on to suckle, immediately knows how to swallow without, you know, don't need to teach anybody to do this. This is something that we just take for granted. And actually swallowing is a process, if you look at it, whereby food, liquid is transported from the mouth to the stomach. So it actually starts probably before you even put anything in your mouth, insofar as that, you know, the, the, the um, sight, smell, anticipation of food will start salivation saliva is very important as part of the swallowing process because it helps to moisten the food actually being able to open your mouth and put food into your mouth is a very important part of swallowing and then obviously then dentition and breaking up the food into a, a, a paste or a bolus that you can then then swallow is also important so there's essentially three major components there's the oral phase of swallowing there's the pharyngeal phase and then there's the esophageal phase so once the food's in the mouth and it's been broken up there's a voluntary then process whereby you push the food to the back of the mouth with the tongue against the hard palate then the food bolus then once it leaves the back of the tongue there's an involuntary process whereby the food is moved into the pharynx the soft palate closes off um the, the nasal passage to stop nasal regurgitation. The food bolus then passes into the pharynx where the epiglottis then closes off the larynx. You then get relaxation of the cricopharyngeal muscle, um, which allows the food bolus into the esophagus, which then immediately closes off to stop regurgitation back in, into the larynx. And then there's peristalsis, which pushes the food bolus down into the stomach. 
So there's all those components. And if you think about it, there's, there's a neurological element to this. There's all the muscular elements. It's very much a, you know, a coordinated effort. And if anything goes wrong at any of those phases, you have dysphagia. I, I remember at med school, we were always told you need to know how things work in health you want to work out how diseases work and how they can impact things so it's really helpful to run through that normal swallow and I wondered how how knowing the normal swallow helps you to approach a patient with dysphagia how does it sort of inform your approach to them? As a gastroenterologist one of the things that we, we tend to find is that there's, there's almost a knee-jerk reaction that if somebody's got a swallowing problem that actually it, it ends up being referred to gastroenterology in one way or another. And yet, if you think about it, lots of other specialities are involved in that process. So, for instance, maxillofacial. If you can't open your mouth properly to get the food in, you've got a difficulty there. If you've got a problem with your dentition, you've got a problem there. The, the conditions, conditions such as motor neuron disease, stroke, etc., which impact on the neurological side of the swallow, Again, would end, people would end up in those clinics. ENT, again, if you've got things like pharyngeal pouch. So actually asking the patient to describe what happens when they swallow is a really, really important part of, of then deciding, actually, where does this patient need to, to be investigated? So, you know, if, if, it's, if the, the problem's in the mouth, then again, that isn't something that would come to a gastroenterologist. If the problem's in the throat, then again, you know, um, we get a lot of people referred for endoscopy, for instance, who, you know, the, 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 the symptom is actually, you know, above the sternal notch. It's, it's actually in the neck, um, you know, and obviously you've got, you know, psychological issues as well around um, globus hystericus and anxiety symptoms that will also lead to difficulty in swallowing. So it's, it's actually asking the patient about to describe what happens when they try and swallow gives you um helps to, you to get a differential diagnosis of, of, of what may be causing it and then allows you to refer them to the appropriate specialty um because as, as, as i say gastroenterologists we tend to be more concerned with swallowing once the, the the food is actually in the esophagus and not the process before that that's really interesting that you raise that and we talk you talked there about sort of an oral phase um an oral pharyngeal phase and an esophageal phase when you ask patients about their dysphagia, what sort of questions are you asking to try to tease that apart? Well, I think it's it's about um, things like, is the, the the problem with swallowing, is it related to solids? Is it, or is it refer, related to liquids? Or is it related to both? Um, you would ask questions about choking. Um, you would ask questions around um, nasal regurgitation. Um, which tends to occur more in certain conditions like motor neuron disease, for instance, you, you will get more of that, that kind of thing. Um, you would want to ask, you know, if the food, is it sticking, let's say, a butt in the neck or does the food feel to be sticking behind the breastbone? Um, you'd want to know about the, the length of history of, of, of the problem. So is this something that's come on acutely or is this something that's been going on for months or, or years? Um, and, and obviously, you know, around alarm symptoms such as, you know, weight loss, um, et cetera. So it, it, it's, it's really around those sorts of questions that I, I'd be concentrating. And let's say, you know, again, you know, can you chew your food properly? 
you know, uh, particularly in, you know, in, in older people, you know, if, if there's problems with dentition, et cetera, it, it can often have an impact on that kind of thing. And, and you know, and, and you know, even in, you know, look at children, you know, that, the, you know, they, they can they can have swallowing problems as well. You know, things around, you know, um, a tight tongue, for instance, you know, a, a child will have difficulty with, with, with swallowing, et cetera. Cleft palate will present with difficult swallowing. Tracheal esophageal fistula in, in, in children will again will, will, will have issues around around um, swallowing, etc. So it, it, this is this is a problem that actually is not just in, in older people. This can you know, present at any age. So from what you're saying there, so things like choking nasal regurgitation might point more towards something neurological. You were talking about things like motor neuron. Is that is that what we generally see if it's if it's something that's sort of not in the esophagus, it's more in the oropharynx. We'll see people who are choking on their flu, flu, food, more fluid related and, and sort of regurgitation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, say if, if you've got some kind of obstruction, it tends to be more related to solids. Um, so, for instance, um, even in the, so in the esophagus itself, if, if you've got obviously a, a tumour, then, then you'll get a progressive dysphagia to solids as the tumour grows. Um, but equally with peptic strictures, that, that will be the same. Um, but obviously you've then got conditions such as achalasia, which will, where the, the lower esophageal sphincter will not open properly, um, or other dysmotility conditions such as scleroderma, where again, it, 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 will, it will, you know, food, salt, liquids, everything um, will, will cause symptoms. So it, it, it again, it's about, you know, asking the, the right questions to that. Yeah. And, and I've always wondered if people say that they feel food is getting stuck in their throat or in their chest, is localizing the blockage, is that helpful? I think I think it's well well known that particularly in the esophagus, it's very difficult to actually tell the, the level at which the obstruction is. Um, I think ab above the sternal notch, if it's in your throat, I think you know it's in your throat. I think once you get below that, I think it is quite difficult to actually say, well, you know, it's mid esophagus, lower esophagus. I think the the, the kind of spasm you get and 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 the, and the um, and the sensations you get actually are poor at localizing where the actual level is. Um, if it's high dysphagia in, in the esophagus, then things will come back, it um, will regurgitate more easily. But I think once you get mid esophagus and below, I think it's very difficult to actually differentiate or, or even something growing up from the cardia um, and, and impacting on the, on the lower esophageal um, junction from, from the stomach again, would be very difficult for somebody to actually set it where it's actually the, the, the level of the pathology is. And, and, and I suppose ultimately, you know, that's why, you, you, you know, you go down and, and, and have a look um, mm. endoscopically, ideally. I mean, you know, going back to the, the whole thing about, you know, the, the, the throat and, and, and where the, the level of the problem is, you know, as an endoscopist, the, you, know, you, you know, one of the major complications is, is around perforation. And an intubation is is, is the, the place where you, you know if you're going to have a perforation, it's most likely to happen, and and therefore, you know, um, I you know I would feel very uncomfortable if if you know I consider that somebody may have a pharyngeal pouch and I was trying to you know intubate and and, and the dysphagia was in the throat. I, I would much prefer those patients to either have had some kind of radiological imaging such as barium swallow or even actually be referred to ENT rather than coming to us. 
we're doing so much more on the telephone now, Mark, aren't we, in primary care? You know, lots of our consultations are being carried out, you know, virtually on the telephone. Is there much benefit in bringing the patient in to examine them? What sort of things would you be perhaps looking for? Do you think it's helpful? Well, again, it, it, if, if you've taken the history and, and it depends on the, on the level and, 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 and this kind of history that you're getting from them. So, for instance, you know, if, if, if you've, you've spoken to the patient and saying, well, actually, the problem is once the, the food's left the back of my tongue and, I'm, and then I'm getting symptoms there, then, you, you know, you can think about um, external compression from a goiter, for instance. So, if you know, examining the neck for lymphadenopathy, for enlarged thyroid, etc., would be very useful in those situations having a look in, into the um the oropharynx in terms of you know looking make sure there's not you know there isn't any any obstruction obstructing lesion and you think about in children you know you know enlarged tonsils will, will cause dysphagia etc so you, you 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 can get an idea depending on the on the level obviously then if you've you've got somebody who's got you know, profound weight loss, etc. Then bringing them in to have a look at them, have a feel of the epigastrium, make sure there isn't a mass there, um, would be very, very useful. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm of the opinion that if you are going to be referring somebody on a two-week weight pathway, I think you have, you really need to bring them in and, and examine them uh, um, before you refer um, to make sure that you're not missing anything, you know, um, and, and so the, the information that you're providing for the referral is, 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 is the best you can give. Um, and, and, you know, and, and thinking about, you know, a lower GI pathway, if you've not done a PR examination, et cetera, or, a, a, you know, a breast lump and you've not seen them. I, I think that that's, you know, you know, again, this is talking more wider general practice um, is, 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 you know, not appropriate really. Um, and in fact, I, I, I've noticed that, in, in our area that, you know, that they're actually asking, you know, specifically, have you seen the patient face to face or has it been a virtual consultation? Um, but, but certainly, you know, going back to, you know, dysphagia and, and, and the potential for upper GI malignancy, I think, you know, lymphadenopathy, epigastric mass, and then, as I say, things like thyroid masses and, and et cetera is, is, is useful to check for. Great. Thanks for that. That's really helpful. You did raise two week weights there, and I wanted to just ask, about referral now so who should we refer and where and when well first of all if you've got somebody who's got you know total dysphagia so they've, they've swallowed something and and, and then they, they they can't and they feel that the, the pain that you get with with this absolute dysphagia and they can't get fluids down um, etc then obviously that's that's an emergency and that needs an, a, a referral straight to hospital for for endoscopy etc of, of the, the the two of the nice ng12 um, criteria the the one that kind of applies here is is that you offer an urgent direct access upper GI endoscopy to be performed within two weeks um, for patients with dysphagia of any age or those over 55 who've had weight loss with upper abdominal pain reflux or dyspepsia and I, I think this is a this is an important point really that you know, dysphagia and progressive unintentional weight losses are the, the, the two um, alarm symptoms that actually have the highest positive predictive value for, for um, upper GI cancer. Um, and the, the pickup rate on, on two-week weight upper GI referrals is actually only 5%. It's only one in 20. 
So, but the two alarm symptoms that have the highest positive predictive value, as I say, actually what I should say is, is a progressive dysphagia to solids um, that feels like it's sticking in, in, in the chest and, and progressive unintentional weight loss. So I, I think, you know, don't, don't be lured into a false sense of security that if somebody's under 55 and they've got those symptoms that actually it's, it's it, cancer's not possible. It, 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 you know, I, the youngest I've seen esophageal cancer in is in, is in the thirties. So it, 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 it does happen. Um, the, there is actually a, a scoring system now available called Edinburgh dysphagia score, which actually helps to um, a clinician to, to, to um, risk stratify whether or not somebody's likelihood of having esophageal cancer. So um, the, the criteria um, for that are across six uh, parameters. The first one is age. So you score points um, so that the older you are, the more points you get. So if you're not to 39, you don't score anything. And then 40 to 49 is four points. And so for, every, for each decade, you, you score the same points as your decade. So if you're in your 70s, you score seven, et cetera. Um, the, the second um, criteria is gender. So um, if, you, if you're male, it's a zero, but if female, it's minus one because esophageal cancer is more common in men. Um, do you have current reflux? Well, if you... Um, if you if you do, then it's it's plus one. If if not, it's it's zero. Does the dysphagia um, localize to the neck? So if it if it does, um, you 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 minus you minus two for that, um, um, because that suggests it probably isn't esophageal. Um, have you had any weight loss more than three kilograms? Then if it's yes, then that's a, a, a plus two. Um, and if it's been going on for more than six months, it's a, a minus 1.5. And once you've added, totted all those scores up, um, if your score is greater than 3.5, then that is um, a higher risk of cancer. Less than 3.5 is, is lower. And doesn't mean that you don't need investigating. Um, it just means that the, the, the likely cause is, is not going to be cancer. Um, there was a, a paper published, a review paper published recently that actually looked at retrospectively at the, at the cases that came through. Um, and they found the average score of the patients that actually had a diagnosis of, of esophageal cancer was seven. Um, so it, it, it helps to discriminate between cancer and non-cancer patients. Um, but as I say, you know, there are, there are important causes of dysphagia that need investigating and managing that, that aren't cancer. Um, and, and, and we mentioned one, which is obviously achalasia, um, and another important one, which I think is, is, is covered um, by my esteemed colleague, Professor Stephen Atwood, is, is around the eosinophilic esophagitis. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that, that the patient hasn't got you know, um, a problem and that needs addressing. It just means that actually it, the, the, the likelihood is it, it probably isn't going to be cancer. But I think the that decision about the risk stratification is actually made at the secondary care end. So I think from a, from a primary care perspective, what I would say to people is if the patient's got dysphagia, 
uh, and they meet the two-week way criteria, then then you would refer them uh, on a two-week way. That isn't your, but obviously if you've done the anemone dysphagia score and you you can use that 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 does actually help the the, the um, clinicians at the secondary care and at the triage and the referrals to then restratify and decide whether or not the patient remains on the two-way pathway or can be actually moved to a routine. Yeah, really helpful. Um, and does all dysphagia need to come to gastroenterology? No, absolutely not. I mean, if, if you're looking, so for instance, you know, if it's somebody who's had a, you know, a stroke and, and is having swallowing problems, choking on, on fluids, etc., then, you know, a, a speech and language therapist would probably be a more appropriate person to, to refer to in, in that instance. Um, and, and as we mentioned, you know, if, if, if you look inside somebody's mouth and the, the, the tongue's fasciculating and, um, and they've got, you know, nasal regurgitation and, and again, dysphagia to, 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 to liquids, then you, you, you're going to be referring to neurology. So um, it, it, absolutely that, you know, you, you, that's where the history and, and that understanding of, of, of the swallowing mechanism comes is, is really, really important. I mean, I, I, again, you know, in my, in my experience, you know, external compression of the esophagus also can cause um, dysphagia, which again you you would not pick up um, immediately. So, you know, I've I've certainly had patients with um, lung cancer that's been um, pushing against the esophagus that's that's, that's caused esophagus caused symptoms, um, and that's only then been picked up subsequently with 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 a chest X-ray, an enlarged right atrium. Um, with heart disease will will again um can can, can compress the esophagus and cause swallowing problems um so it, it's it's not everything um it relates d directly to gastroenterology um but but no you're absolutely right you know and, and obviously rheumatological conditions such as scleroderma will, will, will cause dysmotility etc are blood tests helpful i, th I, th I think particularly in, in Patients who you're suspecting may have esophageal cancer, yes. I mean, you, you would want to check for things like anemia uh, and, and a raised platelet count, um, which, which uh, would, would be worrying. You know, depending on the severity of this phase, if people are nutritionally um, compromised, then, 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 then certainly you would, you would look for things, you know, such as renal, renal impairment and, and, and perhaps, you know, low albumins, et cetera. Um, but by and large, um, I don't necessarily think there's other than the, the standard kind of bloods that you would probably do anyway, that I can, that I would recommend anything um, other than that. Okay. And once we've referred on to secondary care, obviously the endoscopy is, is key in order to look for anything physical going on. What other investigations might a patient get um, in secondary care? I mean, there's various there's various things you can can do um so if if we mentioned about barium swallows etc so video fluoroscopy so actually to look at you know the, the mechanism of the swallow um and 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 that actually you know can demonstrate those various phases that we've we've already talked about to see what what's what's happening there and and, and obviously it's very useful in conditions such as achalasia which shows that kind of dilated esophagus and, and, the, and the beaking at the lower esophageal um, sphincter. For patients with um, conditions such as dysmotility, then there are there's esophageal physiology studies that can be done um, that again look for the, the, the uh, basically how peristalsis happens. It shows the pressure wave 
during a normal swallow. So for people who have got conditions of, of such as nutcracker, esophagus, etc., it, it will demonstrate the pressure wave as it goes down the down the esophagus. Um, also, it will demonstrate whether people have got you know significant um, regurgitation and reflux as well. Um, so that they're, they're very very useful studies for for patients who, who who've got symptoms that are suggestive of, of dysmotility. In um, eosinophilic esophagitis, as we mentioned, you know, the biopsies are absolutely crucial for the diagnosis, um, and 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 often esophageal physiology is done subsequent to that, and also allergy testing, um, but that's um, not always necessary. Um, so that, that would say they're, they're probably the, the main things that 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 can be done against for, for diagnosis of esophageal problems. In terms of management of patients with dysphagia in the community, can you talk a bit about that for me? Um, well, I, I suppose the, 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 the first thing that you, you want to um, establish is the, is the cause of the dysphagia. And then it's a, it's a question of then managing whatever's, whatever's causing it. So um, for, for patients with benign causes, um, a lot of this is handled in, in, in secondary care. So if you've got something that's achalasia, you know, you've got the options of dilatation, um, Botox injections, and, and ultimately surgery. Um, other conditions we mentioned, these and esophagitis, we, there's, there's um, um, orodispersible um, budesonide that, that, that will treat that, PPIs for peptic strictures. Um, if, if you're looking at other causes, um, then... then it, it, it's largely around, you know, if you've got patients with stroke, et cetera, then the, the speech and language therapists will help with that. And, you know, whether or not, you know, purid diets, thickened fluids, um, and, and ultimately whether or not these patients will actually require um, peg feeding um, if, 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 if the swallowing is, is, is dangerous and they're at risk of you know, significant aspiration. Same with um, other neurological conditions such as motor neuron disease. So in, 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 the, in the community, I think it, largely it's around you, you, you're dealing with whatever the diagnosis is um, and, and working alongside secondary and community services to, to, to manage those patients. So it, 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 and again, I'd say ultimately, that, you know, the, the idea is that, you know, you, you maintain nutritional support. You know, that, that's, that's the, the, you know, the, the, the main concern um, is, that, is that patients don't end up um, suffering um, either fluids or calorie intake because they can't get things down. We're just going to we're going to come to an end soon, Mark. So I wondered if you could give us some top tips for dysphagia. Well, I think I think the, the first thing is is again goes back to the, the history. You know, eighty percent of any diagnosis is is based purely on the history and and uh, and and not using jargon. So, you know, we, we're using the term dysphagia, which probably means absolutely nothing to most patients. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's that, you know, what, what is your difficulty in swallowing? You know, what, and, 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 and actually asking the patient to take you through what would happen during a normal swallow, even to the point where you could even offer them something, you know, a glass of water or something to, you know, a, a piece of chocolate or something and say, you know, show me what happens. So I think that's I think that that's the, the first thing you know actually get 
the, the the history absolutely right where where is the problem and 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 um and, and what how is it affecting the patient in that way um i think that the obviously look ask about alarm symptoms you know duration of symptoms if it's a short history versus you know something that's been chronic going on for years significant weight loss particularly over a short period of time um, progressive dysphagia to solids um etc so i think you know think about those kind of you know major things that would, would ring alarm bells um and, and using the edinburgh dysphagia score for that which would help um and 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 i think the main thing from you know again is don't get caught out by you know the patient's age um don't don't assume that because the patient is in, the, in their 40s that they can't have esophageal cancer they can um and, and and sadly, you know, the, the, as with with a lot of cancers, the younger you are, the more aggressive they tend to be. Um, so so don't don't get caught out with with with, with that. Um, and I and I would just also say that you know that not all dysphagia needs to come to gastroenterology. If if the symptoms suggest it, it's an oral problem or a pharyngeal problem, then then gastroenterologists aren't the most appropriate people to refer refer to. Um, and, and you might want to, you know, take advice from other specialties such as neurology, ORENT, etc., um, rather than refer for endoscopy because in some of these patients, endoscopy actually could be counterproductive and, and, and in fact dangerous. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. I found that really interesting and I, I'm sure that our listeners would have learned quite a lot from you there. There's loads of useful information. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.